Welcome back to 10 and 20, the official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about interesting aspects of Tennessee history in roughly 20 minutes. My name's Sarah. And I'm Brad. This is part two of our two-part series on Moscow Branch Carter, who was a Carter son. He lived in the Carter house. And after fighting in the Civil War and being released, he spends the night of the Battle of Franklin in his family cellar, while the men he used to command in the Army of Tennessee fought in some of the most horrific combat of the entire war right outside his house. At this point, Moscow, 38 years old, has returned from the war and is back in Franklin. It's possible he still owned his own property, and was maybe even making a living farming that land for a time. But by the fall of 1864, we know that he and his four children, Lena, Walter, Annie, and Hugh, were living in the Carter House in Franklin, Tennessee. So we're going to jump to the Carter family's experience during the Civil War. And I always like to imagine the family, the night before the battle, you have Fountain Branch Carter in his 60s, You have Moscow and his kids. You have multiple of the older daughters and one daughter-in-law. Yeah, three daughters, one daughter-in-law. And their kids. So there's multiple family units. So living in Carter House at the time, there were 16 Carters, most of them were children, three generations, multiple family units living in the house. And I always imagine the family the night before the battle getting everybody ready for bed and absolutely no clue what was coming to them. Yeah, because there are U.S. troops in Franklin, have been for years, but they've been a very small force miles away, and not a lot of fighting has occurred in and around the property. While that's happening, while the family's getting everybody ready for bed, 15 miles south of Franklin, in a little village called Spring Hill, around 25,000 U.S. soldiers are marching within about 300 yards or 200 yards of the sleeping Confederate Army of Tennessee in the middle of the night. If you want more details on what was going on in Spring Hill, why the Battle of Franklin happened, and more of a play-by-play of the Battle of Franklin, I suggest you download our episode Mint Julep on Todd Carter or the three-part series on John Bell Hood. So we're going to pick up with that U.S. Army marching in to Franklin. And the Carr House, if you don't know our geography very well, is on the very southern edge of Franklin. So the U.S. Army would have first kind of marched right past their house. And at about... 4.30 or 4.45 in the morning, there was a knock on the door of the Carter house. I always imagine Fountain Carter in Moscow waking up, opening the door, and standing on the front step was a guy named General Jacob Cox, who was a corps commander in this army, and thousands of U.S. soldiers on the road behind him at that point still stretched from Franklin to Spring Hill, so like miles of U.S. soldiers on this road. And General Cox tells the family, I need to use your home. I want to get some rest before we march on to Nashville. General Cox was shown into the family parlor where he threw his stuff on the ground. He and his staff laid on the floor and they tried to get some sleep because at this point, nobody is really anticipating there's going to be a battle here in Franklin. That wasn't the plan. If they were going to fight, they would have likely fought the night before. They're thinking this is just a stop on the road to Nashville. About five o'clock in the morning. General John M. Schofield, the leader of the entire U.S. Army in Franklin, also knocks on the door. General Schofield and General Cox have a conversation in which Schofield informs General Cox that the river, the Harpeth River, which surrounds the north side of Franklin, has flooded and 
most of the bridges that were standing are are wiped out or severely damaged. The only two bridges that are left standing, a rail line and a wagon bridge, will need to be planked or repaired. And so long story short, the U.S. Army is is stuck fixing those bridges, and then they'll have to get an entire army across those two small bridges. So General Schofield puts General Cox in command of setting up a battle line or a defensive perimeter to cover the field south of town. Yes, their two lines are honestly feet from the Carter House. Yeah, when you're when you're standing on the back porch of Carter House, you can look out and you can see where the U.S. Army entrenched themselves. I mean, imagine that day they're they're digging a battle line like a mile and a quarter long uh, breastwork. So they're they're digging trenches, they're stacking dirt up in front of them, they're cutting down trees and sharpening the tree branches, laying those out right. They are uh, pulling fences out of the ground. They're ripping boards off the buildings. They're ripping up the cotton across the street. And so they're setting up this solid defensive perimeter. But by doing that, they're also tearing up the Carter farm. I just think that the Carter children are probably upstairs in the bedroom windows looking at all the soldiers outside. You know, almost entranced by the fact that there is an entire U.S. Army, which is essentially to them the enemy in a way. General Cox does in his memoir write about how he didn't even realize how many Carter family members were there. So it seems like they probably were keeping the kids secluded somewhere because he didn't even know that there were so many Carters living there. Um, He also talked about interacting with Moscow, who he knew was a former Confederate officer. But he said that Moscow, quote, kept himself somewhat secluded and avoided inquiries as to his own status. But when the peril was upon them, he, Moscow, became the leader of the terrified and helpless group. So it seems like Moscow is not really trying to advertise the fact that he's a Confederate officer in the front of all these U.S. soldiers. Moscow is also quoted in General Cox's book, saying that the family was used to soldiers moving throughout the area. And there had even been combat in their yard before. At one point that day, though, as the U.S. Army set up their lines, the Carters, Fountain Carter, probably Moscow as well, go to General Cox and just kind of ask for advice. And General Cox says at this point that he, General Cox, thought it most probable that Hood would not attack. So he actually recommended to the family that they stay in their home because if they abandon their home, their house would likely be looted and their valuable stolen. He basically says, as long as I'm here, your house is fine. If I leave, when I leave and thousands of men march past your house, there's a good chance you either won't have a home to come back to or you'll find it vandalized and all your stuff stolen. So he told the family he thought they should stay. But Moscow, maybe because he's already seen war many times, decides that each family member should prepare a bundle of clothing just in case they have to leave. But that's a good point about Moscow being the only one to have experienced something like this. Like, he had been in battles, maybe not anything near the size of the Battle of Franklin, but he's seen soldiers frantically setting up defenses before. He's used to seeing soldiers interacting with one another, but now he's watching his own farm be torn to pieces to set up these battle lines. By this time, too, I would think that you'd be able to hear or see or just hear about how the Confederates are gathering up just a few miles further south. Right, because remember, at this point, all of this is just a precaution. Like, the battle lines are just a precaution. The packs that Moscow had everybody put together is all just in case. Like, according to General Cox, they're probably not going to fight here. This is not the plan. Nobody cared about Franklin. This battle was all about Nashville. But as it got into early afternoon, you look south, and just like you're saying, you see the Confederate Army out there. 
There was a soldier that I was just reading about in the Carter, by the car house, I shouldn't say car yard, but sort of near the car house. And he said that every once in a while, you could hear the rebel yell go out and their music starting to play. And it slowly, slowly, slowly started to get more terrifying as the day progressed. And so I just imagine the Carters at that point fountain in Moscow and the older girls and their kids and at least six enslaved individuals. So at that point you're at 16 Carters. All the children are under the age of 12. Yeah. So they're all young. Little kids, at least six enslaved individuals and the neighbor family, the Lotes family, who, although their house was nice, it was a wooden house. And so right at 4 p.m. as the Confederate army begins to march, they realize General Cox was wrong. This battle is happening. In fact, there's one account that said Moscow was actually up on the roof. And he, wa he could see as the Confederates began to march, and he realizes, we got to get to safety. But Franklin, at this point in time, or downtown Franklin, was close to a quarter of a mile away. They probably figured they couldn't make that journey before the Confederates would attack. While, thankfully for the family, the Confederate army didn't have nearly as many uh, cannons, artillery pieces, as they could have, there were still about 14 Confederate cannons pointed not directly at them, but in their direction. In fact, Carter House is damaged by a cannonball hole that you can see to this day. So the family has no idea. There, there might be artillery fire landing all about their house. They make their way downstairs into the cellar. They end up going into the northernmost room, which was as far away from the oncoming army as they could get. So rifle fire would, would riddle the walls to the south of the house, but they're not only in the cellar, but they're as far away from the rifle fires they could get. And at that point, you don't see much of anything. No, and you can hear soldiers moving around upstairs. The room above them was used, from one soldier's account that I read, was used to kind of gather wounded. So you're hearing probably like the, the wails of those men amongst all the cannon fire and gunfire happening around the house. You don't have the sensation of sight, maybe flashes of light. But as the sun goes down, it becomes almost entirely what you're hearing outside your house. And as the creaking of floors above you, it's men shouting. And I always wonder if they could hear, like if you go to the porch at the Carter house, you can, you can see all the bullet strikes on the wood. I wonder what those popping sounds sounded like, if they could hear them in the cellar. Oh, you know, yeah. artillery fire hit the wall. I always wonder if you could actually feel the artillery fire from the cannons outside. Oh, I'm sure you could, you're starting to, that smoke is starting to slowly creep into the basement. It smells, so you, yeah. You can't see anything, but you're probably not even able to open up your eyes because your eyes are just tearing up from this thick, heavy haze. There was a, a massive breakthrough in the center of the U.S. lines, and at, at that point, right at 4.45 or so, there was essentially a stampede of hundreds or even thousands of soldiers right around their house. So the U.S. Army's retreating, the Confederates are, are coming in right at their heels. We'd hear the rebel yell, this high-pitched shrieking sound. There was then a counter-assault of U.S. soldiers in Opdyke's brigade that come scrambling up Carter Hill at the Confederates. And at that point, it would have, it would have felt to the oncoming Confederate soldiers that, that U.S. soldiers are popping up out of the ground right in front of them. Then you imagine this kind of fighting all around their house and at this point, this is the kind of fighting where if you have a loaded weapon, you've got one shot. And then you're using your rifle. A lot of experienced soldiers felt like it was, it was more effective rather than using a bayonet to use their rifle butt as a club. But you'd have that, you'd have men stabbing each other in the gut with bayonets. They said right outside the Carter house that they're killing each other with picks and shovels. So imagine the children in the cellar hearing guys be killed with picks 
right outside the windows of the house. And that lasts for... I mean, that, that intense hand-to-hand -hand combat lasted about 15 or 20 minutes. But they're still hearing all of those, the screams and the shouting. I don't think that but, died I mean, down throughout the entire... But I think that, that like, swirling of combat right outside lasts like 15 or 20 minutes, and then the U.S. Army retakes the secondary line, and then you'd hear the fields like south, like in the, in the cellar, you then hear the noise shift to the south a little bit, and for the next few hours, it's just this back and forth of hand-to-hand -hand combat as the bodies just stack up more and more. And in the cellar, they're just experiencing that. They're not seeing it, but they're hearing everything. Yes, well, and their soldiers are fighting in the cellar too, right outside their door. But the Battle of Franklin goes from about 4 p.m. till about 9 p.m. And again, in the cellar, you had the Carters, all 16 of them, at least six enslaved individuals, and the neighbor family, the Lodes family, so 27 people in the cellar, most of them are children. I do believe, though, once the battle sounds start to die down, they start to hear something much worse outside than the cannon fire or the gunfire. Because now, it's not silence. It's the wailing. It's the men who lay outside their house, wounded or dying, calling out. It's not until about 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning that the Carters decide to make their way back upstairs. Because you're right, at that point, the sounds of the battle are gone, replaced with those sounds of cries of pain and terror and it's still dark at that point so i always imagine it's it's probably fountain moscow who lead the way i, I gotta imagine it's moscow because again he's experienced this kind of thing before so um, imagine them opening the door to the cellar still dark there's wounded soldiers right outside the door they start to make their way up the steps and immediately the sounds get worse mm -hmm. the smells Yes, that smell of blood, the iron, must have just hung in the air. Blood, burning smells, gunpowder. And then as they walk up the steps, it's still dark outside. But you'd see guys carrying torches, pulling wounded soldiers onto stretchers, carrying them back to hospitals. And it would just look like a nightmare. I mean, Moscow wrote years later that upon emerging from the cellar, they found, was it, 50 dead Yankees right in the dooryard? or 57 dead Yankees right in the dooryard. Mm -hmm. At that point, the U.S. Army is gone. They have pulled out of town after holding off the Confederate assault and continued on to Nashville. So the army that lost the battle is now left to clean up afterwards. And one thing that I always like to mention as we, when I'm on the house tour and as we're finishing talking about the battle, when the family came back upstairs 24 hours ago, they were asleep in their beds. Mm-hmm. No yeah. clue what they were about to experience out there. Yeah, it was close to 24 hours ago that someone knocked on their door and told them that their house was in beaten, says one of the U.S. headquarters. Upon emerging from the cellar, the family is then informed that Todd Carter was there and that he was hurt. And honestly, that they better go find him. Moscow was really the first one to search for Todd. And by a misdirection, he was led to the wrong part of the field where Todd lay. And I find I always find that that fascinating is is like Moscow upon emerging from the cellar and hearing that Todd was there. That means that the men that he used to command, including his, his own brother, were out there fighting and dying while he was safe. And what does he do upon learning that? He just grabs a lantern, takes off, and tries to find him. It wasn't Moscow who found Todd; it was his father and some of his sisters. 
But they find Todd out there on the property. They bring him back home to the house. And it's in the Carter house on December 2nd, a day and a half after the battle, that Todd died surrounded by his family uh, in the house that he was born in. And if some of the stories are true, it's Moscow's daughter, Lena, who ends up being present there when they do Todd's surgery to try to remove one of the bullets from his skull. So it's not just Moscow who's dealing with this later on in life, but, you know, it's part of his children's lives, too. In an interview sometime after the battle, Moscow talked about what he saw out in the fields after the fighting was over. And he's like, I, I picture him like standing in his yard as he says this. And he says, you see this locust thicket on our right? That thicket then covered five acres. But after the fight, it was a forest of toothpicks. In that vegetable patch to our left, General Claiborne fell dead. There is nothing to indicate the exact spot, but it is within 20 yards of where we stand. The cornfield to the left of the pike was filled with dead and dying, and the corn to the right of the pike was a counterpart of the other. In this yard and in that garden, I could walk from fence to fence on dead bodies, mostly those of Confederates. In trying to clear up, I scraped together a half bushel of brains right around the house, and the whole place was dyed with blood. Nothing in the shape of horse, mule, jack, nor jenny was left in the neighborhood. In fact, I remember that it was not until Christmas, 25 days afterwards, that I was enabled to borrow a yoke of oxen and spent the whole of that Christmas day hauling 17 dead horses from this yard. While the family was on Todd's deathbed, the Confederates buried the dead in shallow graves, the majority of which were on the Carter family property. They would live with this mess for over a year and a half afterwards. When their neighbor, John McGavick, and several others, led a movement to rebury the Confederate dead in 1866. But life goes on for Moscow after the Civil War. Right. He was. He actually got married again pretty quickly. On January 11th, 1866, he married his second wife, who was named America V. Cattles. And America gave birth to four kids before her death in 1876. Their children were named Theodric, William Harrison, Alma Cattles, and Moscow Branch Jr. I think it's really interesting that he names his son, his first child, his first son after the Civil War, Theodric. And... After his brother, Todd. After his brother. Because one of the most common questions I get on the Carter House tour is, why did the Carters stay here? Why did they not repair their house? Why did they not repair the farm office? And I think part of it is just time and money. That would have been a lot of work to replace siding and all of that stuff. But I think more importantly, it was as a way to remember all of this. After America's death in 1876... Moscow married his third wife, whose name was Parmelia Elizabeth Moore Mayotte, on October 24th, 1876, so the same year his first wife died. They only had two children together, but they were married for 37 years. Uh, Their children were named Emma Laura and Frank Fair. Moscow's father, Fountain Branch Carter, died on August 22nd, 1871, at the age of 74. By this time, though, Moscow was already essentially the one responsible for the farm. And the farm was never quite as successful as it once was, which kind of stands to reason. The farm was originally founded on slave labor, and the institution of slavery 
which was integral to how the farm worked. I mean, it was it was the enslaved people who were living and running the farming operation, but slavery ceased to exist after the war was over. Mosca wrote, It seems, really, that this life is one of continuous toil. It matters not how hard I work, how perseveringly I strive. There is always something still ahead that I cannot get up with. Complaint would be useless, worse than useless, for it is doubtful for the best as it is. Still, it is in keeping with our nature to grow restive under the remitting pressure. And eventually, in 1896, Moscow chose to sell the Carter House, at least the house and some of the farmland, and relocate to Triune, Tennessee. But his familiarity with the land, and more particularly with the battlefield, led him to return. In many ways, Moscow was the first Battle of Franklin tour guide. On multiple occasions, Moscow would show visitors around his old farm, both before and after he sold it. One newspaper account tells of a group of U.S. veterans visiting Franklin in 1895. And one telling of how, during the Battle of Franklin, Grapeshot cut off the barrel of his gun while he was reloading it, so he threw it to the ground as useless. Moscow, upon hearing this, ran upstairs and pulled out the very same rifle, which his father had found the morning after the battle and gave it to the veteran. I love that story. Like, this is 40 years later, over 40 years later, and Moscow hears the story. He's like, I got that rifle upstairs, and he gives it to him. I know, and how, I guess how interesting would that be? For you to be that veteran to come back and like, you have your gun. There it is. A little bit later in 1897, when Moscow was 73 years old, a group of 80 Missouri veterans visited the battlefield and Moscow, according to the newspaper, quote, piloted the delegation over the house and grounds and pointed out where this general fell and that company stood. He also corresponded with General Jacob Cox, the U.S. general who took over his family's home during the Battle of Franklin. Moscow's account of the battle is featured in Cox's book, and Moscow made a map for the general, utilizing his training as a land surveyor. And it's interesting to me that Moscow is the one who who kind of lives with this story for a long time. You know, I think there's, there's something tragic about a Todd Carter story, the guy who dies in combat. But I also think there's something that's tragic about the story of a guy who just has to keep living with a memory of it. You know, he didn't, he didn't fight in the Battle of Franklin he was in the cellar. He was safe, but he cleaned up afterwards. He was there when his little brother died, and he had to live with those memories for the rest of his life. Yeah, it tends to, I think, almost haunt him in a way. Given some of his later writings, he seems to be really unhappy with himself. Plus, well, even trying to get reimbursed for the losses that they took during the Battle of Franklin. That's a year's battle that he never really seems to quite win. And a lot of the rest of his life is, I mean, he lives a long life. He lives until 1913. He lives to be almost 88 years old. But there's a lot of tragedy in it, too. I mean, not only that we've talked about, he lost two wives. He lost a few of his children. He lost his little brother. His house was destroyed. But then as the years continue, although he had like his adventures when he was a youth, he, he's, the, he's the brother who stayed home. You know, many of his siblings, like his little brother Francis, end up moving away and spending the rest of their lives elsewhere. But he's the guy who takes on the role of maintaining the family farm for as long as he could, taking care of his father. You know, he's he's the guy who sticks around and lives with the memory and keeps talking about it to people who want to hear about it. So I guess we're going to end with this one last quote. 
And Moscow, he said this to his son, Frank Fair Carter, his last child who was born, on December of 1912, so just a couple of years before his death. He said, I have a great deal of war experience, and no, it is bad for the individual. Keep out, keep out. Having not to do with the war, the stirring music of the drum and fife are truly inspiring. But after all, what have you gained? Your losses are plainly visible, but your gains are hard to reckon. You may lose your life. You may lose a limb that would disqualify you for the ordinary duties of life. And the claptrap called glory is of negligible quality that don't pay anything toward the support of a family. Fuss and feathers may do for an occasional parade, but bread and butter are as far away as ever. My advice is, keep out of the army, and as far out as honor will admit. Moscow died less than a year later, on August 29, 1913, at 87 years old. Many of his descendants are still around, and have been willing to share their family treasures, both historic artifacts and family stories, with the Battle of Franklin Trust. If you want to come visit the Carter House, hear more about how the family experienced the battle inside the basement, you can see some of these really cool things that we've been able to preserve. Yeah, come out for a tour at Carter House. You might have Sarah Sarah or myself as your tour guide. Follow us on Instagram at 10and20podcast, T-E-N-N-I-N-2-0 podcast, or send us an email at podcast at boft.org. And don't forget to leave us a review, but only if you like the podcast. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening.